Hello and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Before I put up the next episode, I wanted to introduce you to a man who has pretty much dedicated most of his working life to the research and documentation of reincarnation. Jim Matlock has very kindly agreed to come on the podcast regularly to discuss the many aspects to reincarnation, and I hope you find these episodes both informative and interesting. But before we delve into Jim's research, I think it's important to let you know a little bit about the man. I've had a lot of people asking about the research that's being carried on regarding reincarnation and Jim's recount will provide a lot of the information about this as he's been involved in pretty much every area of serious research that's been happening since the 70s. Originally, even as a little boy, Jim wanted to be a creative writer and he would dictate stories to his mother, asking her to write them down for him. As he grew, though, and became a teenager and young adult, he found that it was extremely difficult to make a career of being a writer, as it's a difficult area to get in and get published. He went to college and majored in English, but still retained his dreams of being a writer. He came close to getting a double major in psychology. However, the program emphasised the findings of B.F. Skinner, who considered free will to be an illusion and belittled conscious experience, and believed human action was determined by the consequences of the action prior. In other words, if the outcome to an action was bad, there was a high chance the action wouldn't be repeated. If the outcomes were good, the action is likely to be repeated, which I think most of us would see in modern life now isn't necessarily the case. Shortly after he finished college, Jim asked his mother if babies had personalities when they were born. According to Skinner's behaviourism, they shouldn't have. Personality was determined strictly by experience. Jim's mother told him that babies most definitely displayed individual personalities from birth, and what was more, each was different. That was all Jim needed to put Skinner behind him. He began looking in other directions and started looking into New Age literature. Having burned through his savings and still harbouring a dream of being a writer, he realised fiction was too difficult to get into, and so he started thinking about writing a non-fiction book. He went to the public library in Arlington, Virginia, and because he was now leaning towards New Age material, he found an entire shelf of books about reincarnation. He started looking into the cases of hypnotic regression and documented them thoroughly, But when he found the stories of children who remembered past life memories, he found his field of study. As the children's stories are, of course, clear memory, without the problems of imaginative overlay that hypnotic regression can create, although we'll go into that later with Jim. On finding Ian Stevenson's books, Jim realised that this was a line of study that he wanted to follow. Psychiatrist Ian Stevenson documented the cases from a scholarly viewpoint, focusing on the facts, providing citations of sources. Stevenson was published in the more mainstream literature of the time, and he referenced the Journal for the American Society of Psychical Research, or JASPA as it's known, and was connected to the American Society for Psychical Research, or the ASPR, which were the leading institution that was undertaking serious research into the subject. Jim started networking in the field and speaking to people who were involved in research. At the time, he also gained employment as a research assistant for a person doing a PhD at the Library of Congress. While this line of work focused on a very different subject, it meant he had a desk and a stack pass that he used in his spare time to follow his own studies. By 1985, having studied the subject extensively for five years, he was finally ready to write his own book. But as he was readying himself to write the book, he was pipped at the post by D. Scott Rogo, who released his book, The Search for Yesterday, A Critical Examination of the Evidence for Reincarnation. Jim went to his first meeting of the Professional Parapsychological Association, and while he was there, he met Scott Rogo and gained a copy of his book. Realising that the timing wasn't right now to write his own book, he realised he could review Rogo's book. He approached John Beloff, 
who was then the editor of the Journal of the Society of Psychical Research of London, and asked if he could review the book. This was Jim's first publication and the start of his career in the study of parapsychology. However, realising that writing was always going to be a risky occupation, Jim decided to work on a career he could enjoy doing and settled on librarianship. He went to school to learn librarianship and discovered, due to the researching of the archival cases, that he was getting more into the subfield of archivist. As part of his studies, he wrote a paper equivalent to a thesis on parapsychology. This paper was also eventually published in JASPER. The publication of the paper brought him to the attention of the people in the ASPR. Jim, with his background, wrote to the different repositories about their collections and wrote a paper on it. This involved him connecting with a lot of the people from the ASPR and also in actually going to the ASPR to collect information. Recognising his unique skills, the ASPR asked Jim to help them put their archives in order, which he did. He was then invited to join the staff. He worked at the ASPR for two years as a librarian archivist in 1987 and 1988. During this time, he was still undertaking his own research and his own writing, and his archival survey put him in touch with other groups who were also interested in reincarnation research, like Duke University, who have the extensive parapsychology laboratory records of J.B. Rhine. Jim was the person who organised the Rhine papers for Duke. He also became involved in the Foundation for the Research on the Nature of Man, or Furnham, because of his work on the Rhine Papers. However, Jim realised that while he enjoyed being a librarian, he enjoyed doing his own research more. Realising he needed to go back to school to gain a degree he could do research in, but disillusioned by psychology because of his earlier experience with it, anthropology appealed to him partly because his life as a young child involved a lot of moving around, as his father had a job in the Foreign Service. He experienced a lot of different cultures and was interested already in the diversity of human culture, the way we live and the beliefs and customs that we follow. But he was also drawn because a lot of Ian Stevenson's cases were not largely Western-based, but were in fact from many different parts of the world, including India, Burma, Sri Lanka and Thailand. Anthropology seemed like a natural fit for Jim to his first love of parapsychology. There were very few people interested in parapsychology that had an anthropological background, as most were scientists, physicists or psychologists. Jim found that his fascination with reincarnation was such a perfect fit that every term paper he did for his masters had reincarnation as the theme allowing Jim to delve deeper into the reincarnation research, but also to apply his findings to anthropology in a way that was meaningful to him. Jim's work brought him to the attention of the Parapsychology Foundation, and his name became even more well-known in the community. He continued his research reviewing other books and research that he felt needed correcting, so he wrote a paper and sent it to the University of Virginia to Ian Stevenson for comment. That brought him to Stevenson's attention. He was asked if he'd like to work at the university as Ian Stevenson's research assistant, as one of the other researchers was leaving to do her doctoral studies. However, Ian Stevenson wasn't working at the university at the time and declined several of the applications that were put before him, one of them being Jim's. It sounds like he was looking for a person with a specific quality or background, so it was just not meant to be at that time. Jim met Ian Stevenson a year or two later when Stevenson was back in the States and they became good friends. Jim says that Ian Stevenson was a genuinely decent human being who was always very polite, respectful and very welcoming. He was an all-round lovely gentleman. They'd go out for lunch together and catch up frequently. Jim had been thinking about doing graduate studies and Stevenson encouraged him strongly, pointing out that if he intended on making any serious contribution to the study, he needed to have an advanced degree. Jim says he owes Ian a debt for propelling him further and giving him the ultimate career that he dreamed of.
In 2011, Nancy Zingroni wrote to Jim and asked him if he'd like to be part of a new parapsychology program she was organising at Atlantic University. Jim agreed delightedly. She asked him to design a course on reincarnation for a new program on parapsychology. That program was unfortunately ultimately cancelled, but Jim continued working on the course, however, and ended up teaching it online on the Alvarado Zingroni Institute for Research and Education, or the ASEA. He still teaches this course periodically as a 15-week course that covers the subject of reincarnation, its study, its beliefs, how reincarnation has been studied in the past, and he reviews all the case material. His hope is that people will learn fully what reincarnation is and develop their own theory. And one overarching theory on reincarnation will be developed that encompasses all of the actual factual data. Jim finally achieved his dream of being a writer when he collaborated on a book with Erlanda Haraldson called I Saw a Light and Came Here, which focuses on children's reincarnation memories. He then wrote a course book for his seminar called Signs of Reincarnation and this can be ordered from pretty much any good book site. When I look to write this introduction it could be purchased from Angus and Robertson, Fish Pond and Booktopia to name a few. He also runs a Facebook group called Signs of Reincarnation in which people can discuss their memories and learn more about the subject from the post that Jim puts up. So now you know who he is, let's join Jim as we consider hypnotic regression and its merits and pitfalls. Hi Jim, it's good to talk to you again. Hi Marilyn, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. We might actually start off before we get into the actual sort of session about uh, you're actually doing one of your courses is coming up very soon in the next week, is that right? Yes, I've been teaching it uh, for, for several years now, and for a while I was doing it annually. And then when my last book came out, I hesitated there because I'm not sure which came first. Uh, I guess I realized that I needed to write out my course lectures. And from that point, I realized if I'm going to write out my course lectures, I might as well compile them into a book. And so I knew from that point that I was going to produce a book eventually. Um, but yes, you know, so uh, I now use my book, it's Science of Reincarnation, as the textbook for the course. And so uh, the courses are designed as a graduate level seminar, uh, and we meet in uh, discussion forums. We don't have regular meeting times, which allows participation from Australia, if you wish. And so people dialogue in the discussion forums, which means they can do it at their own pace and in their own time. Uh, and that's how it works. Uh, yes, the summer session, uh, the next session uh, starts on uh, May 24th. The registration begins actually tomorrow, uh, May 17th, a week in advance. So we may well be underway by the time any listeners hear this podcast. But, but anyway, uh, you know, I, I do have the course. Thank you for asking. Oh, that's all right, because you run them quite frequently, don't you? It's not something that you just do once. It's uh, repeated, isn't it? Well, you know, I have been. Since the book came out, I've been doing it uh, three times a year. Uh, it's a 15-week course, so it's quite comprehensive. And I found that the summer session works best. So actually, I'm probably going to be going back to annually after this, unless there is considerable interest. Now, if there is enough interest from people, you know, I can do it more often than that. Uh, but I've just found that the summer session seems to work best, partly because more people are available then, but also those who choose to participate have more time. And, and so it just works better overall. Um, so I may just be doing it annually from now on. But but still, I mean, you know, if there is interest, I can, I can add more sessions. Yes. That's good to know because People can contact you if they are interested in the course. What would be the best place to contact you? Uh, well, by email, I guess, or through Facebook. If they're on Facebook, I have this group, uh, Signs of Reincarnation. Same name as my course and my book. And they can join that and uh, keep up with things there. Or they can email me. My email is uh, jgmapbox, James Graham Matlock, at yahoo.com. Great, great. Well, I'm glad you actually mentioned the forum because if people are interested in 
I suppose, a scientific approach to reincarnation. It's a great forum to be a part of. There's a lot of people who are involved who are really interested in the field and have a lot of experience. So I can recommend to people that if you're interested in a more serious study, look up Signs of Reincarnation. It's a great forum. I'm in it as well. So um, I can recommend it. Well, thank you. Yes, I formed this group in order to um, make the research a little bit, you know, make it better known, more visible. Um, and uh, it, it's taken some work. We, we do try uh, to maintain a relatively high level of, of discourse, of conversation about uh, reincarnation topics. Uh, a lot of people come, you know, with their own experiences or with questions and uh, you know, we then give feedback in terms of the research, you know, uh, I let them know that, that these experiences, you know, are very common, that their, that their experiences are not as extraordinary as maybe they felt that they were. And in what respects, you know, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's very much a research oriented um, uh, group. And um, people seem to appreciate that, you know, because I guess, you know, on Facebook, it's hard to find. Uh, discussions um, at the level we try to maintain it. So, yeah, anybody who's interested in the research is absolutely welcome. Wonderful. And, of course, even though people might not attend the uh, course this time, they might have to wait till next time, they can, of course, still read your book. Absolutely. I'd be very happy uh, to have um, them purchase the book and, uh, and read it. It's a, um, you know, uh, because it's based on the course lectures, it's a very comprehensive book. And the title is Science of Reincarnation. The subtitle is um, Exploring Beliefs, Cases, and Theory. And that sort of sums it up. We have a lot of cases now. We have a lot of research. We can see a lot of patterns in them. What we don't yet have is an accepted theory, a good, solid theory. And so I developed a theory that makes sense for me that grew out of the research, that grew out of the cases. Um, it didn't start with just, you know, ideas, didn't start with religion. It started with the, the data, right? So I developed this theory through writing the book or through writing my course lectures. And it helped me uh, understand the data and uh, become more convinced that there really is no other way uh, than reincarnation and really in, uh, explaining it. Uh, reincarnation is the only intellectually honest uh, conclusion one can reach on the basis of the data. I didn't start there. Uh, and this is a good segue into uh, hypnotic stuff that was going to be our main subject today. It is actually <laughs> what we're going to be discussing today because, as you know, I... I've actually done quite a bit of research recently into the Bridie Murphy case, and I'm going to be presenting that in the next few days, hopefully, if I can get it edited in time. But I'm really glad that we have a chance to discuss it beforehand, because there's a lot to do with regard to hypnotic regression that there's a lot of questions and a lot of considerations when actually looking at um, hypnotic regression. So you initially started out on the cases of hypnotic regression when you started out in your study, but you quickly realized that there were problems associated with them. And eventually you turned away from them. Why did you do that? Well, let me, let me back up a little bit there because I'm not sure that I quickly uh, realized the problems. Uh, this was circa 1980 or maybe slightly before that. I think, anyway, the late 70s, early 1980s, I, I, I'm not sure of the exact date. Uh, the majority of works that are out there are in reincarnation are on you know hypnotic regression. You know, so those are the ones that I came to first, right? I did see the books by Ian Stevenson. They were there in my library too. But I started with the regressions. And like many people coming to the regression, these things, you know, they seem to be simply convincing, right? I mean, at least the the authors presenting them that way is if the stories and the emotion that came through the stories, you know, was, seemed convincing, right? You know, I accepted that, right? And I was intrigued by it. And I, I started studying this, you know, because I was, I was already academically minded, I guess. And I started noting down the details of each case on an index cards. I was going to do a proper study of all these cases, right? And look at the patterns and all that. I still have those cards. I still have them. Um, and I went through quite a few books, you know, taking notes and all of this. 
Um, and I don't I know how many months I spent at it, some period of time, but I'd gone through what was available on uh, hypnosis that, you know, before I turned to Stevenson. But as soon as I picked up Stevenson, I saw the difference. Um, Ian Stevenson, he was a psychiatrist um, at the University of Virginia, uh, who in 1961 uh, began the systematic study, field study, not with regressions, but field studies with children who in, spontaneously in their waking state, or maybe sometimes in dreams, had memories, talked about them, claimed to have been other people. And not only that, but their memories were detailed enough that the people that they remembered having been, that they said they were, could actually be traced. I mean, they gave names of people, of who they were sometimes, of their parents, of their friends, and said they were from this or that town, village. Uh, a lot of these were in Asia. A lot of these were uh, in India, or at that time it was Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. And uh, it also turned out that with these cases, these children's cases, the ones in Asia at least, the lives that were recalled were not very long in the past. They might be only a few months or years in the past at most. And the lives were very close by, you know, maybe just in the next village or town, you know, at most just a few kilometers or miles away. Um, and so it was relatively easy for them, the families, to confirm this because the children would clamor to go back to where they uh, believed that they had lived. Uh, and so the families would take them back, back there eventually just to shut them up. They didn't always believe them, but the kids were so demanding to go back and they went back there. And sure enough, these things checked out. And um, at, at that point, it became clear that the child's behaviors and personality often fit the previous life, you know, the previous person. So anyway, reading about these sorts of cases in Stevenson, I immediately then saw the difference between the regressions, because with the regressions, you didn't have any of this verification. You had adults who had memories, you know, sometimes centuries before, right, in other countries. And it was very difficult. I mean, even if you wanted to, it would have been almost impossible to, to investigate this. So it was an entirely different type of thing, right? Um, and I immediately saw the value of, of Stevenson's research. And so at that point, I shifted away um, from the regression because the difference was just totally stark. Um, so that's how I got into it. And, uh, you know, um, so but I've continued to read up on regressions and familiar with uh, with what's come out. Um, uh, you know, and so we can discuss that and its limitations. It's the limitations that are actually sort of more the concern with regard to regression more than the stories with the children, because the children are actually remembering, whereas when you're having a regression, the memories are almost being kind of dredged up. And yes. that causes problems, doesn't it? Like it, uh, it causes problems with how much is memory and how much is actual imagination. Yes, it does. And I, I think that's really the crux of the matter, frankly. When the spontaneous memories come, the subconscious, because I believe the memories are in our subconscious part of the mind, right? These, the previous lives are not disconnected from us. The, the, the people we were before are part of us, right? Uh, our consciousness have just continued, you know, after death. So the previous persons, as we say, they're really us, right? They're part of us. And so the issue is how and at what point do we, do we allow ourselves, we can say really seriously, allow ourselves to remember the past, right? So I, I think it's a matter of that. I think it's a matter of our subconscious trying to protect us and giving us permission. And when the, when the memories come up spontaneously as they do with the children and sometimes with adults, when they just come to you, either in the waking state or in a dream, then your subconscious is, is allowing that to happen. And it's generally happening for a purpose, some sort of purpose. Um, uh, you know, so either for a healing purpose or, uh, you know, to pass on some sort of information, uh, but it's some sort of purpose. Whereas with the regressions, 
you're attempting to get past, you're attempting to get around the subconscious, right? You're attempting uh, to retrieve something which subconscious doesn't really want to let go, right? And so there's this resistance from it. And I think that that resistance is what causes the distortions that we often see in regression. Because there have been attempts to verify regressions. And we've just, we've found some that check out some of the time. Um, we've found quite often that some details check out, but the identity of the previous person does not check out. Um, we've also found that um, along with some correct factual things, there are a lot of anachronistic things. There are a lot of fantastic things. It's a mixture. And then there are cases in the regressions that have been traced uh, to things that people read or heard, but consciously forgot. That's called cryptonesia or source amnesia. And that's something we don't see in the spontaneous cases at all. But there are now several documented regression cases. So you see that there's several different ways that the regression stuff just gets contaminated. And, you know, and, and a lot of people, let me say this too, before um, we move on to the next issue, next question. You know, for, many people imagine that hypnosis is this great memory enhancer. And it's sort of imagined to be that, but it's in fact not. This was discovered back when um, if some of your listeners may remember back in, you know, in the 70s, come back to the 70s, 60s and 70s, where uh, a lot of children under hypnosis were claiming to be sexually abused, which was a big thing at the time. And, you know, and this led to court trials. And, but gradually, as these cases were actually investigated, they found that this, none of this has happened. Um, not that sexual abuse doesn't happen. It does happen. But with hypnosis, what was happening is that the hypnotists were sort of asking leading questions and things. And they were, you know, the children were responding in this way. And this led to a greater understanding of, of how memory is, you know, it, it can get distorted and how imagination comes in in hypnosis and how suggestion works. And, you know, pretty quickly, the courts decided, no, we're not going to allow testimony based on hypnosis. So, you know, what I like to say is, if it's not good enough for the courts, it's not good enough for research, you know. So serious reincarnation researchers do not use hypnosis. Therapy is something else. It is useful. Hip hypnosis regression therapy can be useful for therapy because with therapy, What's more important is the psychological validity than the factual validity. And this is something that depth psychologists, you know, looking at a Freud and you know, all the rest of them, uh, know very well. I mean, that we can imagine things, right? Uh, and, and protect us, right? Protect us emotionally from the truth and yet imagine something that will help us get at the truth. In other words, we don't need to know exactly what happened in order to deal with it. And, and so it can, regressions can be helpful for therapy, but for research, they're just not. No, and um, actually it does bring up the, with regard to the Bridie Murphy case, I think that's why a lot of people don't actually believe in the case because the difficulty came in with um, the name where um, Mrs. Corkle across the road was brought up as being the source of the name for Bridie Murphy. And actually you mentioned one that I'd forgotten about actually, and I want to bring it up now. Um, my apologies to my listeners here. I failed to cover the fact when I did Bob Snow's case that he actually, in the progression, um, got the names wrong for James Carroll Beckwith and his wife. He was working under the idea that they had a, a different name. Now, Bob's always been completely honest about coming up with the wrong names initially in the regression session. And when he writes about it in his book, um, he's never tried to gloss over it or make it something it isn't. In the book, he says he asked the name of the woman he was with, who eventually became his wife. And he said he found the name difficult to pull up. 
He felt it was a name he ought to have known very easily, but his subconscious mind didn't want to give it to him. He eventually replied Amanda, though right away he felt uncomfortably certain that it wasn't exactly right. He said her name sounded something like that. Actually, James Carroll Beckwith's wife's name was very different and was in fact Bertha Hall. Yeah. Robert's yeah. own wife is Melanie, which is a lot closer to Amanda. And so that makes me wonder if that's not where that actually crept in. But he was quite honest and open about that. And then he found out through research that he got it wrong and that he, you know, the, the all the other facts panned out. And I think once he right. sort of realised, he then realised, yes, this is the one. Right. You know, and that, that's actually a very important thing to bring up. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people know that case because it's one of the few regressions in which uh, the previous person has been identified. But what, what, what you're pointing out is that um, it was identified not through the names. I mean, he, he had these names and he spent some time trying to research and he didn't get anywhere. It was verified because in the hypnotic sessions, he saw himself working on a painting. And he was obsessed with trying to find this painting. And eventually he did, you know, and that's an interesting thing too. I, I think he was sort of psychically led to the painting, finding it. Um, but um, he did find it, you know, and then once he found the painting and recognized that that was one he was working on, he learned the name of the painter. And then, you know, was able to go back and then saw a lot of the other things that he remembered under hypnosis were correct. So the case is satisfactorily solved, but was not solved on the basis of the names. And yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I call this the Bridie Murphy effect. <laughs> Neither Bridie nor her husband, she gave her name as her husband as Brian. Neither of them have ever been traced. On the other hand, she came out with all sorts of, <laughs> of details. Um, which did check out. I mean, you know, not just things that are right for the time, but addresses, you know, in Cork, Ireland. I mean, you know, things, you know, it, you know, that turned out to be correct. Um, but there was no way of really of her knowing. I mean, um, th that hadn't been written down anywhere. That had to be uh, verified by people on the scene there. It's really interesting when you look at her case because. A lot of the names that she actually sort of brings up, I think her husband's her husband's name at the time had, was was the middle name was Brian, and there and I do think that she actually got the name off Mrs. Corkle. I I think that that's just way too much of a coincidence to have someone over the road. She might not have talked about it, but she might have seen it on a letter, or the kids might have talked about it. I just don't feel that you could say that that was something you could then write off and say, well, that's not how it happened, but um. As you say, I think it's the same thing with Bridie Murphy. When you look at her case, and it's interesting when you actually look at the information, what I realised as I was looking through it is her information was very locational, which I found fascinating. She knew a lot about Cork. She knew a lot about Belfast, but she didn't know a lot about Ireland. So if she was someone who had been like a studying Ireland, she would have had a good general knowledge, whereas in fact right. she really only knew good locational knowledge of where she grew up where she grew up, where she said she lived. Or where and she lived. Too, I mean, nowadays, everybody travels, I suppose, everybody, most people do. Um, you know, at least, you know, in Western cultures, we travel a lot. You know, but for most of history, you know, most people have not, don't travel that much. You know, they, you know, that, that makes sense psychologically, doesn't it? And, and what you're pointing yeah. out is exactly right. I mean, it's not consistent with somebody have done a lot of, having done a lot of background research. Well, that was the thing I think people brought up at the time, the sceptics brought up a lot of, um, oh, well, she had an Irish cousin. Well, the, when you actually look at the Irish cousin, she was born in America. She grew up yeah. in America. So well, even though she had Irish DNA, she probably had never didn't. been to Ireland. Right. Yeah, and wasn't interested in talking about it, if you believe Virginia. And I do, because I yeah. don't think that Virginia, when you look at who she was as a woman, was the sort right. of person... I don't think she even, to be honest, had any great interest in reincarnation. I don't think yeah. she had any need to try and perpetrate this hoax that people said she was involved in or, yeah. you know, misrepresentation. I don't think she, I think she just did it because it was at the party and he wanted her to. I don't think she was particularly committed to doing it, I'll be honest, from the sound of it. And I think that yeah. she, she just was happy to get back to her own life. It was just an anomaly for her. Yeah. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is this was the first major story. I mean, it's not like there were, you know, that there were all these stories and, you know, and she just wanted to be one of them. No, 
she was the first. Mm. Uh, and so she didn't have a model for this. Yeah. So with regards to regression, as you've mentioned, it's not a good tool for actually sort of getting factual memory. But do you feel that there's a place for it for actually triggering the mind to think about those memories? Because people who often have regressions later on will have flashbacks. And even the um, therapist will usually warn them, you may have flashbacks for a few weeks. Do you think those flashbacks are a more valid memory that's coming up? Or what do you think a flashback is? Yes, I do. I mean, those memories are coming more spontaneously. And, you know, when they come like that, one can put more credence in them. Uh, it's interesting that uh, there can be spontaneous memories before the regressions also. Uh, the regressions that have turned out to be the most valid, that, you know, the ones that which the identity of the previous person can be understood. Most of them had spontaneous memories prior to the regression. And the remaining ones, many of them had these uh, spontaneous flashbacks afterward. Now, there are a couple that, that are just not described in enough detail to know, but it may be that, that, just not, that that's why we don't hear, we don't know about them because they, people just didn't bother to make note of that. But I think that's, that's interesting, and I think it's an important thing that some regressions have spontaneous memories too, either before or after. And, uh, but not all do, you know, not all do. And, uh, but those that, that do have these spontaneous things along with the regressions, either before or after, um, I, I think we can put a little bit, you know, we can put more, you know, more credence in them, yes. But again, until we actually verify them, we don't know for sure. So um, to be regressed, basically you're kind of dredging up memories that the, that the subconscious mind doesn't necessarily want to release. Do you think right. we should be kind of guddling around doing this sort of thing or do you think that perhaps we shouldn't? Well, I think perhaps we shouldn't. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't see any purpose in it, frankly, most of the time. Um, you know, the, uh, people who do that want to want to know who they were before with the idea that knowing who they were before will somehow help them. Well, if you actually look at the people who have the spontaneous memories, these are often not easy to deal with, right? I mean, the, the memories are often of traumatic things. Many people, uh, you know, in, in, in children have have struggles, right, uh, in dealing with them. And if, if, for those who maintain their memories into adulthood, the, 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 the problems can just continue. Or sometimes, you know, they'll arise for the first time in adulthood and, you know, in the same sort of conflicts. And, and so... Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't believe that, um, you know, that it's always good to have these memories. I, I just don't. I mean, and, and, and even if the memories are not of traumatic things, they can still be problematical because, and this is an important difference between the spontaneous memories and the regressions. In the regressions, you never hear about uh, a previous life of a, of a relative or a friend. But in the spontaneous cases, a good proportion of them are in family lines or, or, or with acquaintances. Um, and when you, particularly when you come back in the family, you know, you come back in a different relationship. You know, it, all of a sudden, instead of being a grandparent, you're a grandchild. You have to adjust not only to being in a small body, but you have to adjust to being, you know, a, a child or a grandchild. You know, some children find this very funny <laughs> and they'll comment on this. You know, you know, I used to change your diapers, you know, this type of thing. But others have difficulty with it. You know, why do I have to call this person uh, Aunt Judy? She's Judy, you know, I mean, whatever. So, you know, in this sort of thing. So I, I, I don't believe, you know, that, that it's always good and helpful. Uh, to to dredge up these memories. I think it can be quite problematical. And I think that's why we don't normally. I mean, this is what we're pre that we're being protected from by ourselves. And it is ourselves, I believe, that is protecting us from this, right? Um, 
And so, you know, by and large, I don't think dredging up the memories is, is, is helpful. No, I tend to agree with you from the cases that I've looked at, particularly with regard to the kids. It seems to be almost that people who have these memories almost have a form of PTSD because something's happened yeah. and it's left them quite traumatized, whether it was the yeah. pain they went through or the fact that they, as in, for example, Jenny Cockle's case where she left behind her children and she was traumatized about yeah. what happened to my children. So right. I... I think that, as you say, if we have them, there is a reason for having them. And I think that uh, it's almost like we have a sort of a plug or a block that stops us from remembering the memories. But sometimes because of the trauma, it leaks around it. That's kind of the image that right. I have of it. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. But I think that that block is in place so that we then don't become fixated on the past and our memories Unless you've got a real need to. I mean, there are cases, right. as we, we know of, that, you know, that person has, has then become extremely traumatized in this life because yeah. they are still trying to deal with the last right. life. So I don't yeah. think it's – people think having um, regression memories must be cool or it must be really great to be able to remember your past life. I don't think it's something – from what I've seen, no. it, it doesn't seem to be something that's necessarily pleasant or – it's not really a gift. In some ways, it could be considered a bit of a curse. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, but, I mean, you've made several points there. Um, yeah. When the memories do come up, they do seem to come up for a reason, right? I mean, you know, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's some of those reasons are unfinished business. And the unfinished business can be like Jenny Cockle, having left young children behind and worried about them, Right. Um, or it can be a businessman who's worried about collecting a debt, you know, that he died, you know, mm. or, or, you know, having fulfilled an order or something like that. Yeah. So when it comes to Bridie Murphy, um, I mm. think when, when I uh, actually look at the case, I've got to say that I do think that it is a valid case, I've got to say. Oh, y yes, it, I think it is a valid case. And um uh, you, you know, you do talk about all the debunking efforts in some detail. And um, and uh, a lot of people, even people, you know, reincarnation proponents, uh, think that that case was successfully debunked. It never was. I mean, in, no. you go into the reasons why it was not. But but um, it, it's interesting because Bradley Murphy, and you talk about this, the, that book was a bestseller. It was an international bestseller, but it was atop the U.S. bestseller list for several weeks. And it was really a rage. People were having come-as-you-were parties. I mean, <laughs> I just love that idea. Um, yeah, I'm definitely and, having one. There <laughs> <laughs> was all the rage for a while. And then it just stopped. You know, the people were, in a way ready to believe it, right? But then they were also ready to believe the debunking stuff, even though the debunking stuff was debunked, in my view, successfully, very quickly. People were ready to believe, and then they were ready to disbelieve. And that, 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 that really, to me, is fascinating. When you look at it, I kind of wonder if things like the fad for hypnotic regression actually didn't cause a lot of the, the knee-jerk skepticism towards yeah. reincarnation. Yeah, but, but it, it's not just the history of, of the regressions, it's that they're still being done. And these mm. books are still being put out. And you still have people like Michael Newton and so forth who are bestsellers, right? Mm. So this sort of thing is higher profile than the Stevenson stuff, right? So a lot of people who study reincarnation confuse them. And, you know, uh, there are academics who confuse them. Uh, who will um, try to do, you know, laboratory tests and uh, use indis indiscriminately both regression memories and spontaneous memories, say, um, or, you know, mostly regressions and assume that they, that applies also to the spontaneous and it just doesn't, you know, I mean, they, they really are very different. There are a lot of differences, you know, and uh, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, there, there, are, there are some overlaps, like, for instance, you know, in the um, in the, the better uh, regression cases, the ones that are solved, uh, verified, the, all the intermissions are longer, 
than you get in many of the child cases. We have to keep in mind that most of these regressions come from the West. And in the spontaneous cases, the, uh, the intermissions tend to be longer too. So actually in the regression cases, the solved ones like snow, uh, where it's, it's some decades, that's consistent with what we see with, with the spontaneous stranger cases from the West also, is some decades. So there are things like this that are consistent, but then there are other things like the lack of family cases and regressions. That's a glaring difference. You know, and, but again, I mean, I think it's, it that has to do with resistance. I mean, people don't want to allow themselves to know they were their great grandfather. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, another area that we see a real difference in is uh, the intermission memories that we were talking about. Um, with the regressions like Mike and Newton, uh, there's this whole scenario which seems to very much to be built on near-death experiences where people are supposed to have life reviews and all of this and life plannings, tribunals and all of this stuff. We don't hear about that in the spontaneous cases. So um, in the spontaneous cases, what we see very often is um, psychological links between lives. We don't hear about that in regressions. Um, we see... Um, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, a geographical association, which is often explained uh, in the uh, in the spontaneous intermission memories, uh, as uh, for instance, uh, there was a a Thai boy, uh, a teenager who was killed as a teenager murdered for a necklace. His necklace was stolen. You know, so he was left in a field. Uh, and he wanted to go back home. So as a spirit, he's walking back home, but he got lost in the local market. Um, he saw his father of the present life, right, in the market, liked him, followed him home. Uh, he said he followed him home on the bus. It turned out his father had in fact gone to this very market and gone home on the bus at the appropriate time, right? So this sort of, that sort of geographical linkage that you hear about in the spontaneous cases does not show up in the regressions at all, ever. So, yeah, you, you get these differences, you know, and so these are reasons to be skeptical of the regressions. So when we try to, when we take the next step to try to theorize, we start with solved cases, the verified cases. We don't even pay attention to the unsolved ones because it's only with the verified cases that we really show what we have. So do you think that in the future that the, the regressed verified cases will be included or, or will they be seen as a bit of a side anomaly? People like Bob Snow or where right. do you think they'll fit? Um, right. Well, I, I think they can be, I think we can compare them. And uh, to the extent that um, um, what you do in, in, in science when you have an, a situation like this is you compare your, your two samples, right? Um, if there are no differences between the samples on what on the issue that you're trying to study, then it's fair to combine them. If there is a difference, then you can't combine them. So let's say on the issue of intermission length, then, you know, if there's no difference, then, then they would be fair to combine them on that. But we can't combine them on other things. Then you see, you can't then, you know, make the inference that, that, all aspects of the regressions are valid when other aspects of the regressions are not mirrored in the spontaneous. So I think we have to be careful about it. But at this point, we have only about two dozen, at most, at most, at most three dozen verified regression cases. Whereas we have over 1,700, over 1,700 verified spontaneous cases. Most of them are children. Well, thanks, Jim. This has been really, really great. And I really thanks, appreciate Marilyn. you coming. And yeah, we'll talk to you again soon about our next session. Okay, wonderful. There. You take care, bye Jim, bye. and I'll bye. catch up with you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. So I just wanted to assure my listeners that the eerie or mysterious echoes and reverbs that can be heard occasionally in our session are not ghostly utterances or attempted contacts by spirits from the other side. They're definitely just electronic demons of reverb and feedback that occur because Jim lives in a more remote area and there's a degree of lag that causes problems. I've taken as much out of it as I can, but some of it occurs as we're speaking. So sadly, 
we'll have to consider them creepy and intriguing sound effects. With regard to the case that Jim mentioned of the Thai boy, he was referring to the case of Bonkush Promsen. So Shamrat Pukio was a placid and timid young man who helped his family with the farming. He was quietly spoken and religious, and one day he was enticed to a religious fair in 1954 and was murdered for his necklace and wristwatch by two men, who then dragged his body to a nearby field and abandoned it. In 1962, Bonkush Promsen was born and he had the memories of Shamrat and exhibited many of the characteristics of a person with past life memories. But I won't go into great detail about this case as I think I'd like to do an episode on it. It's a good case. And finally, I'd like to just reiterate with regard to our mention of Michael Newton. Just to be perfectly clear, we are in no way disparaging his books or his writing. We're simply pointing out that authors whose subject matter is hypnotic regression tend to dominate the literature available rather than the spontaneous memory cases that people like Jim Tucker and Ian Stevenson focused on, and this tends to push them to the background. That's not the fault of authors like Michael Newton. It's just an unfortunate occurrence that tends to bury the research that's being done. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. Jim will be joining me regularly so we can discuss the many aspects of reincarnation and view some of the interesting cases. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember, you are unique and your life has a purpose. <music>